And we're going to be talking about what it means to be an unqualified disciple of Jesus for the next six weeks. And so this will be a study of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? This morning, we're going to kick it off with a message entitled, The Not-For-Profit Church. So in this series, the study of discipleship, we're going to ask questions like, who are these people that followed after Jesus in the first century church? Especially in light of their interactions with Jesus, there were just a very select few people that actually got to walk with Jesus in the flesh. We talk a lot and we think a lot about the disciples, the twelve But before there was the twelve, there was a multitude of people who were called disciples that you see laid out for us in Scripture, that there were many, many people who followed after Jesus. So what were these people like in light of their interactions with Jesus? What were they called to do as a result of those interactions with him? And the key question, the goal for our series in asking this question is going to be helping us understand how do we move from people who are merely Christians to people who become disciples. There's a continuum there that starts with belief and it it ends at the other end with, with a complete denial of self in following after the Lord and the plan that he has for us. We don't get good at anything overnight. It takes hours and hours and hours and days and weeks and years and months to become a professional at whatever it is that we set out to do. And the same is true with faith. We practice faith in Jesus Christ. And the more we practice, the more that we engage in a relationship with him through the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we become like him. But it's a process that we need to give ourselves grace to follow on the continuum that he has laid out for us. But in light of the study of the disciples of discipleship, what we want to know is, What is clearly made evident to us in terms of what we're supposed to do? Lord, where am I supposed to do from the place where I'm at to move a little bit further down the continuum? So for us, this series is going to be a little bit of a workshop because we're at all different places in our faith. So it would be unfair to say we all have to get from this point to that point because we're at all different phases. The goal for us as we move through the series is to decide where are we at right now and what's one thing that we could do over the next six weeks to move a little bit further down the continuum towards being a disciple of Jesus who has fully given their lives in service to him. I'm still on the continuum. There is more that the Lord wants to do with me as I work out my faith with fear and trembling, and I would suggest that that is true for each of us. Amen? Amen. So there's this passage of scripture that troubles me greatly. And it's up here. And some of you can't see it from the other side of the room. But it says, Matthew sixteen twenty four. it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This word, disciples, is an interesting word. In the Greek, it's, Mathetes. It's a different word than Christian. The word in Greek for Christian is Christianos. Mathetes, Christianos. Two entirely different words. Mathetes, the word for disciple, is used in the New Testament 269 times. Mathetes, be my disciple. The word Christian, Christianos, in the New Testament is used three times which might lead us to believe or understand that it's much easier to define what it means to be a disciple than what it is to define what it means to just be Christian. However, a lot of times when we're at a point of belief, and we just want to say that we're a Christian, it's much easier to say that I'm a Christian who believes than it is to say I'm a disciple who denies myself and follows after Jesus. There's a big difference between those two things. But the difficult thing is much of the church left today is stuck in this place where we're like, oh yeah, I believe. I believe. I believe. And Jesus says, belief is great. But what follows belief that helps other people understand that I am alive and well through the power of the Spirit in this world today? 
To become a disciple, a mathetes, is one who will deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after the living God who has great adventure for us. Amen? Amen. The not-for-profit church. We are South Everett Foursquare, a body of believers following after Jesus. Now, for the purposes of heaven, we are a chosen people, right? We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. For tax purposes in the state of Washington, however, we are a not-for-profit organization. We are a people in God's eyes, right? And we're an organization through human eyes. Both are simultaneously true realities about who we are as this group of people organized in this place at this time, right? Amen? Okay. So being a non-profit in the eyes of the state of Washington means that we are not in the business of selling anything or making any money. We don't sell anything. We don't make any money except for the one thing that we sell is the thing that we are selling back. It's the temporary thing that the world has to offer us that we're going to sell back. We're selling back everything that is temporary. Everything the world has to offer. Think about it. The things that we go out and try to get, the things that we try to pursue, that promises to satisfy in this life but never does. Can you think about some of those things for a minute? And in fact, we're going to take just a minute right here. We're going to do a brief devotional exercise. And everyone, I just want you to shut your eyes for a minute, kind of right where you are. A brief devotional exercise. And we're going to consider on our own right now what Jesus is doing in us. What Jesus is doing in me. Think about you and your relationship with him right now in this moment, May 12th, 2019. We want to place what God is doing in us within the context of what he's been doing all throughout time because I would suggest that it's the same thing. He's doing today what he's always been doing because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in this devotional exercise with our eyes shut, I want us to think of one shiny thing that we've been chasing after that's left us short of everything that God would have for us. Just think of one thing for a minute. It could be pride. It could be a desire for recognition. We could be chasing a position. We could be chasing a house, a car, a vacation. Some sort of thing that we, if we just thought, if I just got this thing, everything would be all better. So get that thing in your mind. And then put that aside for a minute. I want us to think and turn our attention to something that God has asked you to follow after him concerning. What's a thing that God is asking you to go after? This is the big vision. In fact, about six weeks ago, we talked about the one thing. If you had to tell a group of people one thing that you felt the Lord was doing in you or calling you to do that was bigger and scarier than you could accomplish in your own strength, what would that thing be? What's the big vision? What has God set you here for that is impossible to accomplish in your own strength? The thing that you might feel ridiculously unqualified to take hold of. What is it? With the vision, with that vision or the pursuit in mind, let's think for a second about who God is to us. In the time that we've spent alone with Him, in the time that we've spent in His Word, in the time that we've spent in worship, who is God? How big is He? What promises has he given us to do what he's called us to do? How big is he? Who is he? That we might fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who went to the cross, who endured its scorn and its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is the one we pursue. Who is he? He's the one who has asked us to approach his throne of grace with confidence. He's the one. Who is he to you? What is he calling us to? With a picture of who God is in mind, who does God say that we are? Again, back to First Peter. 
one of Jesus' most unqualified disciples, I would suggest, that Peter, filled with the Spirit, writing to the church, says, no, we are a chosen people. That's who we are. God picked us right up to be a part of His adopted family, even if we came in without one. His family is all of those who have placed their faith in Jesus. The Jewish people, the Gentiles people, regardless of nationality or ethnicity, we're a part of His family. He says that we are a royal priesthood. To be royal means that God has made us heirs and beneficiaries of His royal kingdom. Everything that is His becomes ours in Christ. All the power, all the authority we need to deliver peace and flourishing to those around us is in Christ. He says that we are chosen. He says that we're royal. He says that we're holy. The word in the Greek is hagios. This is the same word in the Greek that is used all throughout the New Testament in reference to the Holy Spirit. The hagios spirit. Over and over and over. To be holy is to be pure and blameless. And as it is applied to us, it doesn't necessarily mean sinless. There's a difference between sinless and blameless, right? The Holy Spirit is sinless and blameless. I'm just blameless because I'm a sinner. A sinner called by God to be an unqualified disciple that his power might be proven true, right? Blameless because Jesus chose to adopt me and shed his blood on the cross for me. I'm chosen. I'm royal. I'm holy. What does that tell me in regards to the very scary thing that the Lord has called me to do? He's with me. It's his power. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul said that. Another very unqualified disciple, apostle of Jesus Christ. Guess what? They were all a mess. In their own strength. Every single person recorded in the Bible, every single person who recorded something that landed in the Bible was an unqualified train wreck in their own strength. Every one of them. So guess what? He can use us too. There's nothing about what unqualifies us that will keep us away from God using us if we have the courage to go after him. So keep those things in mind. You can open your eyes, most of you have. But keep those things in mind. What's the thing he's asking you to pursue? What happens when we come to realize that because of our identity in Christ, we have the clarity to sell back everything else that we're pursuing that's short of that? The pride, the recognition, the position, the job, the house, the car, the vacation, all the things that fill us up for a second But water drains out of it like a sieve, and we're left groping after things that just don't matter anymore. People who are concerned about stuff like that, even within the kingdom of heaven, because guess what? People that just believe are getting into heaven, just like people that gave their life. Because it's not about what we did. However, there should be a growing discontentedness in each of us to say, you know what? I got this one life, and I want to live it really, really well. I want to pour it out so there's nothing left except Jesus. And there is joy in that. There is so much joy in that. But if we're going to be real, like an honest confession is, I don't always feel like selling it back. (laughs) The shiny things that I pursue, it's comfortable to just pursue stuff. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 25 about to his disciples about a man who was going away on a, a wealthy man that was going away on a journey and he entrusted his, his gold, his, his wealth to the servants that were with him. And to one he gave five bags and the guy that made, got five bags of gold made ten bags of gold. And the guy that had two made four. And then there was the dude that had the one and he just put it in the bank and came back with the one. And like, there's nothing wrong with that except for the sin of omission. He didn't steal it. He didn't buy things he shouldn't have bought with it. He just kept it. Well, that's what's wrong. He just kept it. Right? Just kept it. Just punted on a great opportunity to do something awesome. There's the sin of commission. That's the stuff that we do wrong. And then there's the sin of omission, which is the stuff we didn't do that we knew we were supposed to do. And the Bible says he who knows what is to do and doesn't do it, sins. The sin of omission. So we might be playing it safe. Sometimes I want to play it safe. I read this and I'm like, ah, 
God, there's this vision, there's this thing now in this neighborhood that you've asked me to pursue. And the breadth of it just freaks me out because it's way too big for me to accomplish. I'd rather, you know what, can we just do church on Sundays? Can we just do this little room right here? There's this codependent thing that happens between pastors and congregations. If they're not careful, it goes like this. I stand up here and say, you know what, so long as you keep putting money in the basket, I won't push you too hard. I won't make you get out of your comfort zone. You just keep putting money in the basket so we all pay our rent. I'll feel real good about this. And we'll all be good. You say, that's great, pastor. Here's the other side of the codependent relationship. I will keep putting money in this basket so long as you don't ask me to do nothing scary. (laughs) And many, many congregations go on year after year after year living in this codependent relationship. Is it sinful? No. Did the word get read? Yes. Was God worshipped? Uh-huh. But, but did, you, did you read the Gospels about what the church is supposed to do? It's supposed to multiply. It's supposed to raise up young leaders, Bubba. Right? <laughs> Momo. Right? It's supposed to raise them up and send them out. Well, if we send out our best, how are we going to do it here? <laughs> Trust the Lord. So it scares me to death to tell just about everyone on our leadership team that they're qualified to plant churches right now. They might be supposed to. Maybe this is where we're still doing our thing. But to say, you can go. You are free to go. God will do his thing. When we raise him up and send him out, he will do his thing. It still doesn't make me very comfortable. I'd rather hold on to the bag sometimes. It's okay to feel like that, but we have to press through that. We have to choose to sit in uncomfortable places and cast uncomfortable vision and then seek the Lord for it. I was meeting with the the new president of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission this week, and he goes, boy. He goes, it's jobs like this, man, that just make you get on your knees more and more and more and seek Jesus. Nothing will make you seek Jesus like doing something that's bigger than you can accomplish on your own. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Right? But it makes for better stories. So as God's children, the chosen, the royal, the holy people of South Everett Foursquare Church, we will sell, this is a mission statement, not the missions, we're still working on that, but this is a statement about our values and our priorities as a congregation moving forward because this is a stakeholders meeting. Boy, if this is a stakeholders meeting, it changes everything, doesn't it? you got a stake in the game, Right? We will sell temporary things as a not-for-profit organization. Promise, it's the only thing we'll sell. We will sell the temporary things, the easier things, in pursuit of the eternal things, which are the harder things. As a not-for-profit organization, we have punted on making money as well. The only thing we've been tasked with making is disciples. We sell nothing we make nothing except disciples who make disciples who make disciples. There's an addition way to do church. And then there's a multiplication way to do church. And everything about the New Testament church says the church is about multiplication. We multiply things. So let's go back for just a moment to the beginning to understand something about the heart of God. One is that he created out of love. Always. Some people ask, did God, was God narcissistic? I mean, he created people to worship him. It's weird, right? If we look at it from a worldly perspective as to why God created people, he created not because he was lonely. He was triune in nature, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, three persons. So he was relationship to begin with. And out of relationship created more to share what goodness he had with as many as he could. God creates out of love. And then, here's the cool part, he uses those he's created to share his love with more people. The creator creates so that the created can express the love of the creator. Wow! So that's that's where, unfortunately, we come into the game. That's where we're asked to put down the easy thing to pursue the harder thing, which is love your neighbor. Oh, love my neighbor, love my neighbor. Love my mother, love my father, love my brother, love my sister. Oh! It's hard. Love, I want to like them too, right? Because love is obligatory. Like is a thing. I want to like these people. 
But going all the way back to the start, I got an example. Something I, you know, Bubba, not Bubba, <laughs> Vaughn, come on up here. Come on up here, Vaughn. Give it, give it for Vaughn. I want to put a picture in our head right now. Come on up to the, to the seat. God's plan. This was God's plan for you today. <laughs> he created, the creator created the created so the creator could express the love. The creator could express the love of the creator. Right? First John. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God, for that is who we are. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. How great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. That we should be called children of God, for that is who we are. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us. How much water is it? How much love is it? How much has He lavished upon us? How much has He lavished upon us? Lord Jesus, we thank you for our brother Vaughn. <laughs> Hallelujah, Jesus. We thank you that you have called him according to your purposes. Father God, we thank you that you have, that you have called Vaughn out of darkness into your magnificent light that he might declare the one who did it all. Lord, would you fill him fresh again today with the power of your spirit Lord, would you heal his body from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. Lord, may he never forget this moment that even when he feels unqualified, Lord, you are lavishing your love upon him. And he is called your child. And he would do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit or in pursuit of something that is of his own strength. That he would say, Lord, my strength has run out. I am unqualified, but yet you are qualified. Your power is made perfect in weakness. Father, we thank you for this Man who is pursuing your kingdom like nothing else. Lord, as we pour into him, may he pour into others with a love and a pursuit of you that would change neighborhoods and cities for your glory, that from Vaughn would come a thousand who are greater than him as he pours his life out. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, for that is who we are in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 Good job, Vaughn. Amen. <laughs> He's got a towel. Discipleship, making disciples, is when one of God's kids says to another one of God's kids, you're worth pouring into. That's all it is. This forever, if you're worried about what discipleship was or wasn't, it's that. That someone would pour into us. That we might pour into others, that they might pour into others at multiplication type levels. No one poured into me like Brian Arwine. He's gone now. He went home to be with Jesus. But no one like him. If he'd just done me, then I, I then, then everybody, now everyone I've touched is a direct result of the impact of Brian Arwine, who touched many more, who touched men that are currently serving in Germany as missionaries. Men who are loving Jesus in Phoenix, in Las Vegas, in Wisconsin, at Seattle Church on 99, in Aurora, in North Seattle. He touched so many who are touching more, who are touching more. Vaughn's already done it. He's touched so many kids that if he, if he went home to be with Jesus today, people would be talking about his legacy for years to come. It's too late. 
That's the trick of the gospel. You've already done it. You've already made the influence. And men like Bubba, who is already making an influence in the lives of other people. Discipleship. Pouring love into other people. Mm. So every part of God's word has to be understood in light of the whole. Every part of it. Every part. We understand discipleship from the outset of creation to the fall to the redemptive work of the prophets, the judges and the prophets, and then Jesus that's moving us towards a renewal, a full renewal on the other side of this life. The redemptive arc of all of Scripture says that there was creation and a fall, but then there was redemption and renewal. How do we understand discipleship in light of that? That God is a creator who admits the consequences of the fall had a plan for redemption. And eventually through Jesus, all things would be renewed and are being renewed. Where does discipleship fit in this? 41 generations before Jesus. 41 generations before Jesus, there was a man that God chose whose name was Abram. He would be renamed Abraham because of his obedience unto the Lord. And God chose to put him at the center of the plan to reverse all of the chaos that had come about because of the destruction of true relationship between God and man with Adam and Eve in the garden. He chose Abram to reverse all the chaos Every single bit of it. And Abram, boy, he was old. I mean, his wife was old. I mean, these people were old. Like, Mother's Day ain't coming to our house because we are old. We are unqualified. We can't do it. Abram was kind of set. He was a little bit set. He was in the retirement years. His 401k was all set up. Everything was fine. He was doing good. He had every reason to choose the temporary things. He had every reason to not sell back the temporary things. Abram was born in the city of Ur. He was the son of Terah, a descendant of Shem. This will all come in in a second. The son of Noah. So we go back a little further to Noah. Genesis says that Noah was a righteous and a blameless man amongst the people of his day. And he was 10 generations and about 1,650 years removed, removed from Adam. So 1,650 years from Adam to Noah. And then it says that Abraham was the son of Terah, the descendant of Shem, the son of Noah. God's been working since the beginning to try to bless his people through the relationship and the pouring on of love. And sin keeps getting in the way. But over thousands of years, this is the point, he has refused to abandon his people despite our unlikely usefulness within the context of his plan. He just won't abandon us. He keeps wanting to use us, even though we have this propensity to make colossal mistakes over and over and over. Sound like your life? Sure sounds like mine. Remember who God is. Remember that in this moment, he's calling each of us into something deeper. And it's scary. But the trajectory of our God for thousands of years and hundreds of generations is goodness and faithfulness. As he calls a chosen and a royal and a holy people to live out his plan. What is he calling us to do as individual members of South Everett Foursquare? More than a message, this is a workshop for us. This is discipleship training and action in this moment. Lord, what are you calling us to? What would you do in us and through us? So let's look at it. It's found in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3 and a quarter. So that's as far as I'm going to read is verse 4. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Go from comfort to discomfort because 
I want to do miraculous things through your life. But you're going to have to punt on a couple things, Abram. You're going to have to punt on comfort. You're going to have to punt on making money. You're only going to make disciples. Because I will make you a great nation, verse 2. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the people on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went. He punted. He said, okay. And he went. He went. Unlikely disciples selling back the temporary things to be a part of the master plan. 41 generations after Abram, who became Abraham because of his obedience, 41 generations later came Jesus. Along the road, it went from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to the 12 sons. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin. The 12 sons of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. It just keeps coming down the line. Those 12 sons became the patriarchs of 12 tribes. These sons, insert more dysfunction, insert more disqualifiedness. Read Judges, it's a train wreck. I mean, these people were a mess. And they didn't listen to the prophets either. Fast forward 38 generations. The royal chosen holy people had sinned again and again and again. They had fallen captive in Egypt. That also happened. The northern tribes fell to Assyria in 734 A.D., 700 years before Jesus came. They were captive. These tribes, they split. This family, these 12 brothers and their families split. Nine to the north, three to the south. Civil wars were taking place. They were chasing shiny things like pride and arrogance and position and new cars or chariots or whatever it was they were going after. But they were, they were in the wrong. And the Lord was putting them on time out in different places. So in 734, he took everyone in the northern kingdom and sent them to Assyria. And then, as if they didn't see what happened to the other brothers, the three younger brothers, about 150 years later, got taken captive all the way to Babylon. They were captive under Egypt and Assyria and Israel. And by the time, 38 generations later, when we arrived to Jesus, here the people are back again in their hometown, but just as disgruntled, were under the captivity of Rome. Always under captivity, always underqualified. Enter Jesus and his disciples. His aim in the season of years leading up to his death was to refocus the hearts and the imaginations of his children for a genuine love of God and neighbor. That's what Jesus came to do with these 12 disciples. John MacArthur, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, points out a set of instances in Luke chapter 5 where frustration was building, tension was mounting amongst the religious leaders because Jesus was doing some pretty crazy stuff. He was doing things that were breaking the rules of the religious day. John MacArthur says, When Jesus chose the twelve to be his official representatives, preachers of the gospel that would carry both his message and his authority, he didn't choose a single rabbi. He didn't choose a single scribe. He didn't choose a Pharisee. He didn't choose a Sadducee. He didn't choose a priest. Not one of the men he chose came from religious establishment, which is why we do not want to be a religious establishment at South Everett Foursquare Church, because God won't choose us if we become one. Oh, he's put us on notice, hasn't he? It was a renunciation of the men and their organizations which had become totally corrupt. That is why the Lord didn't choose one recognized religious leader. He chose instead men who were not theologically trained, fishermen, tax collectors, and other uncommon men and women. I would, per, I, would, I would say that if we read the Gospels correctly, we will see the place of women and mothers so profoundly that it will blow our minds. I mean, it just absolutely blow our minds. Jesus chose men in the day because of the cultural expectations of the day. 
Women didn't play around in the background because Jesus thought they belonged in the background. Women were positioned within his strategic plan to save the world in the place where they were because he had to identify with the culture that he had arrived in. Don't ever let anyone tell you different. Women were the first ones to see him when he rose. The last ones to sit at his feet when he died. The one whom story said will be told over and over and over and over and over until he comes about the one who poured perfume on his head. One of the very few that even recognized that his death was coming before it came was a woman. As a side note. The symbolism in choosing the twelve would not have been lost on the apostate leaders of Israel. Excuse me, you chose twelve? Twelve is kind of a number. Like in Seattle, we kind of claim that number, right? Twelve. That's a Seattle number, 12. We lay claim to number 12. Israel laid claim to the number 12, and then Jesus picked 12 different ones. Unqualified, uneducated, unschooled, ordinary men, as Acts 4.13 would tell us. It was a new day. It was a new approach. The disciples were Jesus' not-for-profit organization. Because they weren't selling anything except the temporary things of the world. And they were only making disciples. Not for profit. Paul was a disciple of Jesus. He was a converted for profit religious leader. Because so much of what the religious leaders did was for their own profit. It was for their own gain. It was for their own reward. So he was a for-profit religious leader. Then he got messed up with Jesus and became a not-for-profit guy because he said, I consider it all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus. Sell it all. Punt it all for his glory. Anything that I thought was of any worth. Bye-bye. I'm working for him now. You get a paycheck? Nope, just in heaven. non for profit organizations. That's Jesus and his Molly crew. And this is what he says Paul, the converted religious for profit leader, after selling everything for his faith, said, Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 1 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Okay, back, close your eyes. Back to our vision. Back to our little devotional exercise. I shudder to think what I was when I got called. When I got called, I was so far from Jesus when he called me. Brothers and, uh, brothers and sisters, think of what you were before you were called. Not many of you are wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Verse 30, it was because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore it is written, Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. We're unqualified. We're not for profit. And we've punted on everything so that he would just pour his love into us, that we might pour it into others. How great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. For that is who we are. So we're going to, we're going to, it's good to talk about this stuff in theory, but it's even better to see it in practice. And what I want to show in the next few minutes with Pastor Chris and with Natalie, if you two would come on up here, I want to show you the really, really beautiful fruit of really difficult thorny journeys. Um, and so I've asked Natalie to come and share, and Chris is going to share with her a little bit, and they're going to talk about how Natalie got from here Comfort Town, punted on a bunch of stuff and ended up uh, leading a ministry in a congregation in Tecate, Mexico. So can you give them a hand as they share? All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. 
Natalie, such a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for making time. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah. All right. So, um, I have my cheat notes here. Um, for those that don't know, Natalie and her husband, Francisco, are a part of Studio De- Del Creador. There we go. Um, and, huh? Good job. Good job. Thanks. And um, we are partners with them in their ministry down in Tecate, Mexico. And so she is up for about a week now, hasn't it been? And um, she's taken time this morning to come and spend with us. And that's just a real treat for us. And so um, I just want to say that I am so encouraged um, personally by your discipleship with Jesus and how you not only display your discipleship, but how you lead and train others in discipleship. You are a beautiful example of that. And so um, thank you for leading so well in this area. Um, oh, I can get my phone to flip one-handed. This is, this is a young person's tool, you know. Um, I need Isaac up here to help me. Okay, so Natalie, um, just in one or two minutes, can you just um, explain to us... Um, what it is you and Francisco do down at Studio Del Creador. Sure. Of course. Um, well, my husband and I uh, run a art and music school in a little border town, and all of our classes are free. So we have a team um, that rotates through the year, but there's usually about 20 people serving, um, teaching different creative classes. And then on top of that, so we just celebrated our 10th anniversary, um, with that ministry, and we have celebrated recently our fourth anniversary with a church start. So the school is evangelical, and the church is the discipleship end of it. Fantastic. So how did you become involved in the work you're doing down there? How did that all start? Well, um, I moved down to Mexico and started working and serving at an orphanage, with the dream to start and pursue this project and this ministry. So um, I don't know. I just would say that after serving a while at the orphanage, um, I felt a clear impression that we were to start in Tecate. It was a town that needed a new kind of ministry and didn't have anything in the creative realm, um, no art school or anything of the sorts. And so... Um, when the Lord just kind of gave me the impression that it was the time, I pursued the Lord and he provided and, you know, we, we knocked and the door opened and asked and we received and everything's a miracle since then. Wow. Fantastic. Oh, no. I tell ya. All right. So, um, were there, uh. Were there things or ways that God made it plain to you that you were to pursue this ministry? And can you give give us some examples? Yes, there are quite a few. Um, The Lord made himself very supernatural to me from a very young age. And so um, when I was 16, after praying and asking the Lord specifically to give me a ministry with the arts, um, he gave me a dream one night when I was sleeping so that was very clear because I woke up like that was not just a normal dream. Um, it was a dream of the school that we have we, we have every day now. Um, and then the other thing would be when I went on my first missions trip um, with Mill Creek Foursquare, uh, I got to hear the Lord's audible voice telling me that he was preparing me for a life in Mexico, which is pretty radical. Um it was just so clear. I think that, you know, I was pursuing French and wanted to go to European countries, and I had that heart to serve. Um, but I think he needed to make it audible f- to bring me to Mexico. And from then on, like, I would go down to the orphanage all of my summer vacation, spring breaks during college. And every time I'd go, I would just, I was one of those believers that would say, hey, Lord, if it's, if this is the place, and if this, after he spoke to me audibly, you guys. <laughs> I'd be like, if this is real and you really want me to be here, can you show me in this way? And I'd give him some specific requests. And he always, always, always did it for the next three years. 
That's amazing. So just a little side note here. Um, I, I love how you said you made yourself available and you went down um, and you followed up on that. You know, um, I don't know that Mexico is on your heart, but she made herself available and she pursued something. Um, and, you know, we do trips down to Mexico with Mill Creek Foursquare and we've done it here with um, our church. And you know, if you ever feel the tug, it's all about making yourself available. It's about looking. It's about seeking what God is doing with your life, you know, or would have you do. And if you open up doors, if you're asking, the word of God says, if you ask, you will receive. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, the door will be open, right? And so she was asking. She was seeking. And she was knocking. And that is so important when we're looking for direction, when we're looking to see what is it, Lord, that you would have me do. If you don't have the clarity on that yet, God is faithful. He has designed each one for a purpose. He has purpose in our lives, right? We're not just here to fill up a chair. I don't think God designed anybody to just sit and fill up a chair. But if we're asking and we're seeking, and so I love that part of your testimony, that God was faithful because he wants us to know. He wants us to be active and alive. He has good things. He is for us. And so as we're faithful in that, in creating opportunity, God steps in to those opportunities. Okay, so did you ever feel inadequate in this process as you began to step in and open that studio and um, disciple and, and get into that whole process? Did you ever feel that word, big word, inadequate? Oh, yes. <laughs> when do I not feel inadequate? <laughs> well, um, so I'd say... In the very beginning, it was definitely the foundation is on faith. And so um, there's actually, I wanted to share a quick verse. It's one of my favorite verses. I'd probably have just as much of a struggle. Okay. Colossians 3.23, it says, um, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. So I'd say that I just, when I felt inadequate, I just gave my all. And I just asked the Lord to um, use my life. But I think with the focus on being that everything that I was doing for the Lord led me to a level of excellency in everything that I did. And um, and then the Lord would come through that. And I think He, his power would rise up and his... Um, he would strengthen me and use me where my weaknesses were. And so I'd say that all of my journey is what am I doing? The most recent one is pastoring. It's like, okay, I didn't go to, um, you know, seminary. And <laughs> it's a constant, um, a constant journey of just asking the Lord, how do I do this? And um, I think that he, his power is shown through our weaknesses. Amen. And, um, man, he's the best counselor. Right? And his word. And so, yeah. Fantastic. So um, what does his discipleship look like for you personally as you carry out this work at the studio? Good question. Well, um, so there's two at the studio specifically. Um, we believe in creating relationship and building friendship with each person that comes through the door. And so many people have not experienced community or healthy community or loving community or family. And we get to offer that to each person that comes through the door. And so when they're in their classes, um, the teachers and our church team and ministry team makes an effort to um, build a relationship with people, start with asking, how are you? A lot of times the people that will, the Lord will most radically change in their season with us, they're usually the most hardest, hard-hearted, um, closed-off people in the beginning. But um, as we pursue that relationship and that friendship with them and show them that we care, um, they begin to open up. And a lot of times people are freed from depression just from simply feeling that they are important, um, first in a, by, by another human, and then through that they come to know, realize that they are important to their creator. And so that's the basic way that we start discipleship pro process in the studio. 
How beautiful. All right. Well, is there any final thoughts or scriptures that you'd like to share with us? Well, I'd say that same te- that same verse, Colossians 3.23, and all that we do, um, do it as if it was for the Lord and not for men. And I would just say that I just want to imprint that on you guys today. I think that when we do everything for the Lord, we can become disciple makers in our lives because people will begin to see that level of excellency in everything that we do, and they'll be able to see the Lord through what we do. Um, and I think, you know, if we're going to work with a poor attitude of, oh, it's just my thing to do from 8 to 5, and, and you're not doing it as if it was for the Lord, the people in your uh, surroundings will notice it, and um, they won't see Jesus in you. But when you go with the willingness to do it as unto the Lord and not for men, I think that's when you can start to create disciples. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Natalie has a table out um, in the foyer, and she brought a couple T-shirts and such, new T-shirts. I hear that, understand they're a new design. And so design. new first design. So you'll want to get this uh, original edition. Okay. 20 bucks cash today. If you'd like one of those, you can see her after service. And if you'd like to continue this conversation, um, she'll be out there. So um, can we go ahead and pray for Natalie? Do you have a moment to do that? Um, Natalie, like I said, we partner with her and with her husband, Francisco, and with her ministry. And so if you would stretch forward a hand, she is family. This is family to us, and we want to bless family, all right? So um, if you'd pray with us. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for... Um, Natalie and Francisco, Father, we bless them in the name of Jesus. We ask your continued favor on all they put their hands to. We ask, Father, that you would protect them divinely, Father, in the name of Jesus, that your faithfulness would be a shield about them. We ask for divine health, Father, over each of their bodies, that you would bring strength to their bodies, that you would quicken their bodies by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask for provision in every area, Lord, and that you would bless their ministry, Lord, meet every need. Father, in Jesus' mighty name, may they carry your heart, Father, as they touch the lives around them. Father, we thank you for this couple. We commit, continue to commit their service to you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Can we thank Natalie for coming and being with us this morning? If you just need regular encouragement, please sign up for her newsletter, and she can get you that information. They're, they're, they're good writers. They write good stories. Um, good stories happen, and they record them well, is what I should say. And that is what I would consider the, the continued living book of Acts, um, is when we tell good stories. Now, it's not what we write as ever in Scripture or anything like that. That's a theological off-base. But they encourage, and they point towards the work of the Lord. So You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.